Welcome to The World We Got This. As we recently marked a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, we wanted to share a podcast episode produced by our Department of War Studies, looking back at what we've learned over the past year of fighting and what it might mean for the future. It features Dr. Marina Moran, who uses her knowledge of Russian military strategy, information warfare and technology to explore what's happened over the past year and why, as well as look at the implications for future global security. We hope you find it interesting, and if you do enjoy it, just search for the War Studies podcast to find more of their episodes. Welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. They've had this new kind of indoctrination for all these years. So whatever happens outside Russia, there is always a very carefully crafted information campaign designed to convince people to believe, you know, what the narrative is. And those who do not believe, they will be crushed. Hello, welcome to the War Studies podcast brought to you by the School of Security Studies at King's College London. I'm Anna Wilson, Communications Officer for the School of Security Studies, and I'm joined today by Marina Miron, postdoctoral researcher at the Department of War Studies. Welcome, Marina. Thank you for having me. We are recording this podcast in February 2023, which is one year on from the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So today I hope to use Marina's expertise to look back at the year just gone and find out what we've learned what we haven't learned, and what might come next. So Marina, that is a big ask. Um, So I'm going to start off with a suitably enormous question. What has changed? We're calling the 24th of February 2023 the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, but Putin's Russia began its occupation of parts of Ukraine as early as 2014. So while sanctions were put in place, the type of military aid we're now seeing seemed completely out of the question for Western states. But here we are six years later, and it's very much on the table, and a lot of training and military equipment's already been given to Ukraine. So what exactly has Russia done to change Western government's perception of its strategy, and why has it caused Western governments to offer offer up expensive and potentially politically risky military aid? Well, that's quite a good question. And I would like to start at the very beginning. And, you know, one year ago, we couldn't have imagined Russia invading Ukraine. Nobody thought that they would launch a special military operation. And I think um, we were kind of myopic when we were thinking about Russia as of January 2022. And we seem to have forgotten what has happened, as you said, in the past eight years. And just generally how Russia has positioned itself in the global arena, because from the beginning of 2000, Russia has started identifying NATO as a potential threat to its own existence. So that's when 
everything has started and that's when the first color revolution in Ukraine took place and that's when Russia started to exert its influence mostly politically on Ukraine but at that point um, we can safely say that the Russian military forces were not up to the standard to conduct any military operations anywhere and we have seen that in Georgia Russia has failed miserably in Georgia in 2008 which has led Russia then to initiate a reform of its armed forces in order to modernize them and to to bring them to the standard and to the exigencies of wars of this new century. And so in 2014, what we have seen was kind of a prelude to what we have seen um, last year. And at that point, Russia was batting on the fact that NATO, because it's such a bureaucratic organization and because NATO was involved at the time in Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq, so it had other hotspots to deal with that, you know, taking Crimea would paralyze NATO's decision making and take it by surprise. And that's essentially what happened. There was a strategic paralysis when Russia conducted its operation in Crimea, and it was very well planned. They did information operations prior to the actual kind of military action, which was limited to a certain degree. And I think the benefit for Russia was that um, Crimea is largely Russian-speaking, and they don't really identify with Ukraine. They have their own kind of Crimean identity. So that, that was different. And what was also different is that NATO was didn't see that coming. Ukraine wasn't prepared for that either. And so after this kind of the second color revolution in Ukraine, Russia decided not to wait any longer and to take the first step. And then, as we know, after that, Russia has started getting involved in the Donbass and, you know, basically supporting the opposition and sending some of its own people to train and to arm the militants there. And at the same time, NATO just turned around and looked at this and then did nothing. And when they decided that they would do something, it was already too late. And I think what we're seeing now is kind of the continuation of this policy, because taking Crimea is not such a big task. And at that stage, the Russian armed forces were still not prepared for a large-scale military operation. And then came Syria in 2015. And so Russia had to defend its interests elsewhere. And also, what happened in Syria is that Russia got the opportunity to rotate um, its military officers to gain experience on, on the contemporary battlefield. And from that perspective, it was very important because that helped kind of prepare the armed forces for something like Ukraine. And at the same time, obviously, we, we, we have seen that Ukraine, uh, having seen what happened with Crimea and, you know, having suffered continuous cyber attacks from the Russian side, has started working closer with NATO. General Zeluzhny was doing exercise with his NATO counterparts. He was trying to change the organizational structure of the Ukrainian armed forces and just uh, the the general thinking about, you know, uh, command and control and delegating authority on the battlefield. So he chose to go for this decentralized command. And so during these eight years, the capabilities of the Ukrainian armed forces have changed. And so what happened is that, of course, Russia was seeing this as a kind of as a security threat. It wanted to be able to project power in what it's calling its near abroad, namely post-Soviet space. And 
because Ukraine in every single official document, um, such as a kind of military doctrine or national security strategy from 2015-16 onwards, started naming Russia as the biggest threat. So from, from the Russian perspective, the idea that Ukraine might join NATO would potentially or could potentially lead to NATO invoking Article 5, because um, Russia is mentioned in every document. So for Russia, that would be less than an ideal situation, because Russia and NATO have always found a modus vivendi, and they never clashed. Even if we look at Syria, they managed to deconflict, um, and Russia was in Western Syria, NATO and U.S. forces were in Eastern Syria, and they tried to get out of each other's way in order to prevent any potential clashes between the forces. And so now there was this looming perspective of Ukraine joining NATO, of U.S. forward operating bases being right next to Russia's border. So we're talking about kind of Cuban missile crisis too basically for Russia from from that perspective. And so they decided not to wait and to act. And at this stage, Russia has underestimated the NATO response. And Russia has also underestimated um, the capabilities of the Ukrainian armed forces. So I, I think, you know, if if we think about this whole timeline and how things have developed, perhaps it, it would be less surprising to think that, you know, Russia would actually go through with the invasion and launch its special military operation, regardless of the premises on which it is based. You know, we have to, to be able to understand the adversary and how the adversary thinks in order to be able to somehow predict what might be the course of action. And I think from this perspective, it is not surprising. What is surprising is, you know, this time NATO has learned from its past mistakes and having lost Crimea, we have seen kind of more willingness from NATO states to help Ukraine. And I think that this was decisive in, in terms of, you know, what Putin was expecting. He thought maybe they'll turn a blind I and say we don't want to um, get into this um, mess because we don't have a dog in this, in this fight and, you know, we don't want to risk anything. We don't want to risk an escalation with a nuclear power. And, you know, at the very beginning, Putin was talking about using nuclear weapons and put his um, nuclear forces on high alert as to show, you know, just basically to deter NATO countries from supplying specific types of weapons to Ukraine. So I think, you know, there are many lessons to be learned just from, you know, how we were looking at this and how NATO has reacted. That being said, we're still seeing the culprits of um, NATO's action in, in this sphere because we see how this helped to Ukraine. So you have humanitarian aid, you have military aid. And so how this military aid unfolded during the, the conflict. And I think that's kind of a big problem because despite the fact that there has been indeed a response, sending bits of equipment to Ukraine and, you know, kind of slowly testing your way forward and, and looking, you know, how Russia might react, I would argue has been potentially detrimental for Ukraine because it seems like they get a batch of weapons and, you know, they use them for a while. They have this um, kind of disruptive influence on the battlefield and then Russians get used to it and, you know, it goes back and forth and then NATO thinks, okay, let's send something else, maybe something that, that will increase in Ukrainian capabilities. And so I think also from that perspective, we should be uh, looking at lessons in terms of how the, the the kind of the whole bureaucracy works and what, what the readiness is on part of NATO when it comes to 
to pledging its help and support. So you've talked a lot there about Putin and Russia and how their perception of Ukraine and Ukraine's allies has kind of shaped the the actions that they've now taken. Reading the news, Putin and Russia as words seem pretty much interchangeable. Is he just the figurehead of a government with an aggressive foreign policy or is he the driving force behind that? My question to you then is how big of a factor do you think Putin's personality is? I think it's very important for the Russians to see a strong figure leading the country. And if we just look geographically at at the size of the country, it's limited to several really big cities. And then you have this kind of stark contrast in in terms of, you know, people who live outside the cities and who might not be as involved in politics. And realistically, that's a kind of generation that's coming out of, you know, Soviet rule. And basically during this Soviet rule, it it wasn't like the leaders enjoyed particular popularity or trust from the population, but the population just thought, you know, as long as I don't open my mouth and don't criticize whoever is at the top, I'm fine. And I think, you know, to a large degree, that's kind of, you know, this political apathy is what we're seeing in in kind of most of Russia, because uh, People don't really care if it's, you know, um, Putin or Medvedev or wh- whoever else it might be. It's kind of all the same. And obviously, uh, from Putin's view, he is trying to keep his country united. It needs kind of a strong leader because they have different republics. They have kind of Muslims there. They have Christians and Orthodox Christians. And so he's trying to kind of unite this melting pot and create a single Russian identity. And he's been doing that for a while. And and the whole idea uh, that... Um, Basically, the the threat that's coming from the West is an attack on Russia's identity and Russia's way of thinking and Russian culture. So this Russianness, and that's something that Putin has been doing very well, is basically trying to promote this feeling of national identity, of national pride to be Russian, not just in Russia, but also amongst Russian speakers who are living abroad. And he's been doing that ever since the beginning, because ever since he he took over, there was this kind of understanding the the Russian military thought has been evolving. And, you know, after the Soviet Union had broken down, we didn't know anymore what war is and will there be war? You know, if you remember Francis Fukuyama talking about the end of history and, you know, Russians had the same kind of issue. Uh, What now? Where are we going from here onwards? And then the the kind of the thought in terms of how future conflicts might look like and what are the new threats and and where are they coming from has shifted and there was one um very well known in Russia geopolitical scientist and politician Alexander Dugin who at the very beginning wrote that you know we should be looking for friends in the east and Southeast Asia, because the Western world will never forget the kind of the Cold War paradigm and will never be able to perceive us as anything else but adversaries. And then Russia started looking at, you know, how NATO is behaving and the Gulf War came. And that left a very bitter aftertaste in Russia's mouth because they have seen force that was numerically inferior to that of Saddam, just, you know, crushing Saddam's forces in the Gulf War. And not just that, 
the 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 whole fear was that Saddam's forces were using Soviet equipment. And so that that's exactly what the Russians had. And so they said, okay, well, we have this equipment. We have a larger force than, let's say, the Americans. But because of their technological superiority, because of well-conducted information operations in, in the Gulf War, they were able to carry out this operation very successfully and reach their military objectives and reach their political objectives. And so that kind of created fear. And, and the Russians started focusing on, on, on this informational part. So one was kind of the, the wars being contactless and the, the other part um, of thinking went into this information spectrum and how one might seek to undermine the consciousness of the people. And I think Putin in this role was crucial in starting to implement information security and domestically basically continuing the Soviet propaganda, but in a a much more sophisticated way, because he had um, mathematicians write about, you know, different models of how to implement this, the, the information operations and both domestically and abroad. And I mean, we're seeing, you know, Russia using troll farms right now in cyberspace. And that's all kind of part of of the broader effort in this information war. So I I, I think um, given the fact that Putin has been aware for such a long time that he has to protect Russia from a foreign information influence, I think that to a certain degree, a large majority of people who kind of who let themselves be indoctrinated by this would actually support Putin. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that they support every single foreign policy decision. I don't think they even get into that. As long as it doesn't interfere with their day-to-day life, I don't think that there is kind of much questioning in terms of what Putin is doing. As long as, for instance, the sons of of these people don't get recruited to go on the front, then it's fine. you know. And even then, Putin can very skillfully makes a case for why that is necessary, because they've had this new kind of indoctrination for all these years. So whatever happens outside Russia, there is always a very carefully crafted information campaign designed to convince people to believe, you know, what the narrative is. And those who do not believe, they will be crushed. Russia as a securitized state, they are keeping close tabs on those who don't agree with the government. And, you know, did they have, for instance, in Moscow, the smart city project where you can, you, they can identify faces of people, you know, who, whoever opposes the regime and can find them on social networks and things like that. So it's not that easy. It's kind of the big brother is watching you all over again. So I think when we're talking about um, Putin and Russia, I don't think we should be equating Putin with Russia because, um, to, to a certain degree, the majority of the population, as I said, will, will be either indifferent, just leave me alone and do your politics in the Kremlin, and, and I'm just having my own life here, you know? And the thing is that people want kind of some sort of continuity that Putin is able to offer, rather than kind of any stark changes. And so people are happy with the status quo, okay, if it's Putin, then it's Putin, if it's Medvedev, they, he was president was Putin being the prime minister, nothing much changed, right? So I think we shouldn't be really equating um, Russia with kind of Putin. Putin is doing his thing and, you know, he made sure that there is no opposition from the country. And and those who were opposing, they are now dubbed as foreign agents and they're somewhere abroad if they manage to escape. So I think we should be very, very careful talking about, you know, what the Kremlin does and wants and, and how it, it manages to justify what it's doing in the eyes of of the populace. 
And, you know, what can the populace do to prevent Putin from doing that? Really, not much. Thank you. Those are some really good points about, you know, differentiating between the leading class and the general population. But going back to what you were saying about the people in charge of Russia, Putin in particular, having very grand plans for Russia's place in the world. Has everything gone to plan with the invasion of Ukraine? Russia's leadership in the fields had a really high turnover. The generals are not only being killed at a high rate, but military shakeups of the status quo are quite common. From what we know of the Kremlin's aims, is that collateral damage and a fast adapting strategy, or is it the result of quite a serious miscalculation? I think that when we're looking at Ukraine, we're just focusing on what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine militarily. And it's understandable. It's in the news every single day. And we're looking at, you know, Russian uh, soldiers being killed um, at the destruction. And we're thinking, you know, what 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 is Russia actually doing there? Uh, and, you know, it might be completely losing it because there is no point. However, in the background, There are a lot of other interesting things going on that are being overshadowed by these events on the ground. And I mean, of course, it is a war. People will be dying and probably Russia could have done more to to basically, if it if it has already committed to the special military operation to adhere to the international laws of war, to to you know try and protect its own forces and so on. But despite the setbacks on the battlefield, to which I'll get in a moment, we have to look at you know what what, what has happened since. And I think um, Kremlin has realized the mistake pretty quickly. I mean, it was in three weeks and there was kind of this confusion, what is going to happen? They were supposed to take Kiev and now the decapitation strategy that they envisaged didn't work. They didn't want this special military operation. And so I, I can imagine that it's very difficult to correct that mistake because you cannot just redeploy your forces because you will be losing your face. You just made a case why you want to go to Ukraine in front of everybody, including the international community. And so there is no way back. There is just a way forward. And I think trying to correct the course of events while kind of dealing with these setbacks hasn't been easy for Russia, especially um, because it was was not prepared for the kind of response that NATO would offer. What is important here is that Russia has tried to secure alliances all over the world, excluding the NATO coalition, but including some of its members, such as Turkey. And Russia has been working with Turkey for a long time now since Syria. You know, the relationship might have been a bit rocky at times, you know, when when the Russian um, aircraft was shot down and, and incidents like that would have kind of contributed to some fluctuations. But other than that, both countries are profiting from this relationship. So Russia is trying to kind of divide NATO, but not by military force here um, it's using aggressive diplomacy. It's using aggressive diplomacy on the African continent. Speak South Africa. Lavrov just finished his tour and is returning to Russia. And apparently, it was quite successful. And you know, according to their own expectations. So one would think, you know, it's an English-speaking country. Why would they want to work with Russia? And and there we have it. And uh, Russia is projecting its influence in the Middle East when it came to, you know, the oil prices and and the pressure upon OPEC plus countries to kind of cooperate and punish Russia. They didn't do it. 
you remember perhaps the last visit that uh, President Joe Biden had um, to Saudi Arabia and how that went. And those are kind of the things that you're not seeing at the first glance. And that's something that's working in the background, but that's something that Russia has been doing successfully because NATO's help to Ukraine has kind of confirmed Russia's narrative that NATO is indeed the enemy. And so for Russia, it's not a war against the Ukrainians or against Zelensky, it's a war against NATO. And so they are now trying to kind of spread out and and secure as many kind of um, supporters or at least neutral bystanders as they can. We see that in Latin America, we see um, Sino-Russian relationship being much better than in the past. Also, it's quite difficult. I I wouldn't go as far as to say it, it is great, but it's better than we have seen over the course of um, Russia's new history. And at the same time, the Chinese-U.S. relationship is very bad. Now, after the spy balloon incident and, you know, all the other things over Taiwan and, you know, it's it's a separate story. But Russia is trying to secure major players to support it. India, another one, Iran, North Korea, and Latin America. So we we have all these countries that are seemingly non-aligned, but still they are not willing to condemn Russia. And sometimes they even support Russia. So we have to take that into account. And so from the Russian perspective, they are saying, right, look at the map, look how big NATO is, and look how much territory is left in the rest of the world, including those countries that do not want to necessarily support NATO's policies and who still buy uh, weapons from us, who still buy gas from us, and so on. So I think in this perspective, Russia has managed to pursue its diplomatic goals with great success in, in, in terms of kind of securing those countries, getting them on board, getting Turkey on board to a certain extent, getting China on board, India again, um, South Africa, a lot of kind of Africa countries um, where Wagner is active, Mozambique, Burkina Faso, Mali, uh, where, you know, Russia is trying to counteract Western influence and quite successfully. So I I think we we should be wary of those diplomatic efforts and kind of look beyond what is happening in Ukraine. Another potential issue will be the Arctic and the militarization of the Arctic and and the fact that uh, Russia is now the leading power when it comes to militarization of the Arctic, with China also having its ambitions when it comes to the Northern Sea Route. And so, in a sense, we have to understand that NATO will have to deal with Russia in other spots. At this point, it would be premature to say that, you know, Russia will be crushed by whatever outcome it will come to in Ukraine, because I think it has managed to establish a somewhat secure kind of net around it, a support net around it, despite the fact that, you know, we've we've been hearing this rhetoric, Russia doesn't have any friends anymore, and Russia is left alone and isolated, and it's over. And I think it's pretty much far from over, and it's been very successful in spreading anti-Western kind of sentiments. And off the back of that, then you're talking about friendships and alliances and the world kind of separating into two camps. Have we seen this before? Is this a new Cold War, as a lot of people, uh, particularly in the media, like to say? Uh, What's what's your take on that? 
Well, I think it's quite a catchy term, the new Cold War. I mean, we have hot spots in this new Cold War, but essentially, and, you know, from, from the Russian perspective, again, this is um, a clash of ideologies. This is the uh, Russian ideology and way of living with the Western progressive liberal ideologies that are clashing right now. And I think, yes, in a sense, we, we, we could say that it's a Cold War, but I think the means and the ways have evolved since the actual Cold War. We're still seeing a lot of examples of what, you know, used to be referred to as active measures from, from the Russian side. We're seeing that also being employed by, by other countries who are trying to kind of, you know, we're fighting for India. You know, India is receiving humanitarian aid from, from Germany. But at the same time, India is buying Russian gas. So we, we kind of see that, you know, Russia is trying to compete again against um, the West and, and trying to kind of convince and explain to the world its way of living and trying to secure partners and create bilateral um, agreements in order to secure its economic future. And obviously also its military future as well in terms of military development, because it has been slowed down as a result of sanctions, but not the sanctions now. I'm talking about the sanctions that were imposed upon Russia in 2014. So I think in a sense, yes, we could broaden use that term to describe what is going on now. I would say a Cold War was a few hot spots because, you know, what we're seeing in Ukraine, that goes kind of beyond what we have seen during the Cold War. And, and the involvement in kind of third states was in a way covered, or at least it wasn't publicly admitted and, and was kind of, you know, under the wraps. And here we're seeing kind of a full-blown war going on in Ukraine. So that would differentiate it. Thank you. You've just mentioned hot spots, if you like, in this new Cold War, if we if we allow ourselves to use that term. I don't think we could do a podcast looking back on the past year with Ukraine and Russia that didn't mention the nuclear threats. So going nuclear is the ultimate level of aggression. It's the absolute last resort. But Russia, quite early on, threatened it a number of times. So setting aside how convincing those threats are, what do you think making these threats tells us about how Russia perceives itself and its strengths? And can that in any way be used to estimate what their next moves could be? Well, I think um, it's interesting that Russia has used its nuclear trade to threaten other countries. And to a certain degree, those countries that have nuclear weapons do feel themselves more powerful and more privileged in their international arena. And so they do not think um, that the nuclear weapons are using their losing their strategic utility in today's world. And so there, there are kind of a lot of ways to look at it if we're looking at, you know, um, those players as kind of rational actors and thinking, well, you know, it wouldn't be uh, reasonable for Russia to use nuclear weapons because then Russia would be destroyed. But the problem is we cannot really use this kind of rational choice theory to estimate what course of actions Russia might take when it comes to nuclear weapons. With that being said, I'm sure that, you know, Russia doesn't quite envisage the end of, of its lifeline. In other ways, there are 
so many other tools, both kind of military and non-military between kind of now and the use of nuclear weapons that Russia might consider that. I think it is just rhetoric that is losing its power. It's losing its deterrent power because now many more countries have nuclear weapons and nobody really wants to use them because we know what the outcome will be and it will be a much um, greater catastrophe. Also, Russia doesn't trust other countries to not use nuclear weapons against it. And there is a system that apparently launches a counter-strike, an intercontinental ballistic missile going to the United States should uh, Russian leadership be taken out by one of such missiles. So they are preparing for that potential scenario. But I do not think that, you know, and that nuclear weapons will come into play here. Even if, if kind of Russian doctrine says as much, but I think Russia has realized on a doctrinal level that nuclear weapons, they haven't become obsolete by no means, but they have lost their power. And that's why they have been trying to work out a a doctrine of strategic deterrence, but it's called a system of non-nuclear strategic deterrence, to look for other ways to create a, a strategic deterrent without recurring to nuclear weapons. Because you want to have something in your arsenal that you can actually use rather than, you know, threatening to use something that you know you will never use. And and that kind of uh, undermines the the whole potential of these nuclear weapons. So I think in terms of rhetoric, a a lot will be said about nuclear weapons and Russia will say, well, a nuclear power never loses, as um, Peskov said, the um, spokesman, the Kremlin spokesman. But I think, you know, in a very unlikely likely scenario that uh, somebody attacks Russia with nuclear weapons, it might fire back, right? But I think anything short of that wouldn't actually make Russia resort to pressing the red button. Great. Thank you, Marina. So we've kind of been leading up to this question. You've mentioned a lot about global alliances, about Russia's neighbors, hotspots, cold spots, the benefit of hindsight, and Russia's aspirations. So my question really is... What's next? We've already mentioned that the 24th of February 2022 did not come out of the blue. The pieces have been moved around the board for some time before that, but it didn't really draw significant resistance from Western backers until the full-scale invasion. Should bordering states like Georgia, with its Russian-backed and self-proclaimed republics of Ossetia and Abkhazia, um, and Armenia and Azerbaijan, with the armed Russian peacekeepers in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, should they be worried? Um, a peacekeeping mission, then a reunification mission. That was what began Russia's involvement in Ukraine in 2014, after all. What do you think the future holds for those areas and the wider global community? Well, I, that's a very good question. And that's a, an opportunity to talk a little bit, a couple of minutes about the military situation and how that has been evolving. I promise to mention that. So basically, Russia is now fully involved in Ukraine. It hasn't done um, a complete mobilization, but in terms of its military presence, I think that it wouldn't be viable for Russia to commit to any other hot spots surrounding uh, Russia. 
and I will explain why shortly. Um, let's first look a little bit of you know how this military operation has been going for Russia. So we have already said that um, at the very beginning there was a lot of confusion and and the Russian uh, forces have lost a lot of good uh, qualified officers with experience in, in, in contemporary battles. And whatever was left was then um, redeployed to, to the Donbass to be able to kind of restart to do as a second stage. And, you know, to a certain degree, since the Ukrainians were still kind of uh, not getting the kind of help that they needed and, and they, they were fighting with old Soviet equipment. And because the Donbass ha had already been prepared and uh, since 2014, it was easier for the Russians uh, fighting along the, the militias to make some gains. And then they came into this operational pause. And that's when the tide started turning. And that's when, when the Russians saw, uh, looked at how Ukrainians fight. They looked at NATO's resolve to help. That's when HIMARS arrived on the battlefield. And so they, they had to act very quickly to implement the lessons learned from that first period in terms of command and control, in terms of you know how, how they conduct their operations, in terms of also trying to shorten the line of contact. Because you know when they lost these Zoom and then Liman and and um, Surovikin, General Surovikin decided to withdraw the troops from that part of uh, Kherson and bring them to the left uh, riverbank of Dnipro. So there was a certain learning curve and it also required a partial mobilization, which was not very welcome because we have to remember that Russians uh, still have their own Vietnam syndrome from Afghanistan in 79. So for Putin... Um, escalating uh, anything in terms of, you know, uh, mobilizing um, the entire army would not look good and would potentially threaten his power. There is only so far he can go. And that's a reason why um, he annexed those parts of Donbass in order to, to claim that this is needed to protect the Russian territory. Because regardless of how we see that, for him, it was necessary in order to be able to make that excuse. And now I'm coming to the important part, like, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh and Abkhazia and all those kind of other regions, shaky regions. I don't think that Russia has the military capability right now to engage there. That's first. Second is um, we have Armenia and Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan is being backed by Erdogan. So in political terms, Russia wouldn't be winning anything by kind of trying to destabilize the status quo right now in Nagorno-Karabakh. Because uh, for Russia, it's easier to settle those things with Erdogan diplomatically. And, you know, both sides would kind of exert their political influence to reach some sort of a ceasefire or some sort of agreement that can work to freeze a conflict or kind of to, to stop it and, and, you know, to prevent it from boiling over. Essentially, every two, three years, there will be some, some something going on. And then, you know, both countries would step in and try to regulate it. So I, I, I don't think that at present there would be much danger to other countries, you know, there, there were also talks about Moldova and how, you know, Russians might be trying to encro encroach upon Transnistria and uh, nothing has happened so far because I don't think Russia can overstretch its efforts right now. It has 
try to improve on the go whatever is happening militarily in Ukraine. And to a certain degree, even if, you know, we we, we, we don't like to admit it, the mobilized people were not as bad as um, one expected them to be. And, you know, they, they now close the capabilities gap when it came to um, uh, surveillance and reconnaissance, namely, you know, the use of Iranian drones. They have tried to... Um, solves a problem with the kind of the centralized command by appointing Surovikin, and he would then act as a single theater commander in order to bring some clarity in terms of what is happening and to make the decision-making much more flexible, have somebody actually responsible there. And now uh, General Gerasimov replaced Surovikin for many reasons, but General Gerasimov, the, the uh, chief of general staff, uh, is kind of the highest ranking officer who has had experience. So they, they are putting their best military planner out there. He's a great st- staff officer to take care of this uh, special military operation. So I think, you know, they have to a certain degree learned the lessons and adapted to what's going on. Plus, they're also getting all the input from, from NATO I mean, which has kind of a political connotation saying we pledge to send tanks to Ukraine, but it also has kind of this problem that, you know, Russia is already prepared to see those tanks rolling on Ukrainian ground sometime in April. So it has enough time to kind of adapt. And so I I think um, having learned those lessons from the military perspective, it's not going to be like Syria with a minimal minimal commitment with air superiority and deconflicting mechanisms where you can basically use your air force and 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 some special operations forces on the ground without uh, without creating a large. Footprint. Ukraine is different, and so I, I, I think it wouldn't be plausible for Russia to try to solve any potential issues right now, other than in a diplomatic way, or to 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 have them wait until this big issue is resolved, namely Ukraine. Thank you. That was a really big question and a really good answer. And of course, not the only question you've been asked this year. You're from. <laughs> the War Studies Department at King's College London, which is a very busy department as things go normally. But this past year has been incredibly busy with requests from media. Um, You know, you've really got a fast turnaround time on new research um, to produce it before something else happens and that research is suddenly out of date. And there have been new aspects of warfare that have been brought up. Um, We've got a war on continental Europe, which I don't know about you, is not something I ever thought I would see, but here we are. A busy year by all accounts then. What do you think in your, you know, your role as a researcher with a university studying warfare, what is the most significant thing that you've learned in the past year And how is that going to change how you look at war and conflict in the future? Well, I I think it's quite a good question because, you know, in in our our kind of academic circles, we have those discussions. So what might be next? And, you know, this is not going to happen. And this kind of old style warfare, you know, what we're seeing in Ukraine, the World War One and World War Two tactics being used. And, and, you know, it's not just as a researcher, but also, you know, on the NATO level, these kinds of topics uh, such as, you know, uh, combined arms separations and 
and uh, kind of peer and peer wars and and you know the role of tanks they they have faded in the past they died with a kind of the cold war and some countries even decommissioned tanks because they didn't think that they would be useful and i i i think that the most important lesson as we go forward is that we should never say never and we should never discontinue any possibilities because um you know saying something that in foreseeable future we will only see kind of internal war civil war such as we've seen in syria it, it would be very very inaccurate and, and there indeed can be anything awaiting us in the future and you know a lot of kind of military um series have focused on these contactless wars where you predominantly use the air force and you know you you take out your kind of uh, the, the you target the centers of gravity of your adversary and you don't even need to commit troops and and also kind of all, all the new developments like using artificial intelligence to help decision making on the battlefield and and things like that and it's all very techy and all very promising and all great but we shouldn't discount the kind of the old skills that are needed to conduct wars and when you're faced with them you know uh, somebody who's who doesn't have a GPS, like a special operations uh, officer who doesn't have GPS and, and who just has a paper map and maybe a compass, will he be able to survive in in the contemporary environment? And I, and I think those kinds of skills are getting lost because they're not needed anymore because there is so much reliance on technology and, and you know as i said thinking about this kind of future warfare that it will be just kind of a limited commitment uh, just some surgical strikes and, and it's over out and and it's done and i think we should be ready for everything and we should be trying to maintain those capabilities that kind of the earlier generations had before us before we kind of move on to this new era of kind of contactless wars where you have kind of some non-state actor against um, a state actor and we're just you know as nato coming in to kind of support one side and and you know have a limited involvement that's fantastic. Thank you, Marina. They were all really, really detailed answers. And you've shown it's as important to look forward as it is to look back. We've learned a lot from Ukraine. We haven't learned as much as we could have done from Ukraine. Is that fair to say? Well, yes, I think that, you know, the lessons learned, they will have to be digested over the next years and implemented, perhaps, because, as I said, we have kind of these elements from the past that s still survive to this day. And then we have the elements from the future, uh, sort of these kind of new developments. And, and, and you know, we, we kind of have also a lot of out of the box thinking there as well. And so I think combining those three elements will be crucial in, in, in order to be ideally prepared for what is coming next. Thank you very much. Um, that was Marina Miron, postdoctoral researcher at the Department of War Studies. Thank you, Marina. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to The World We Got This. This special guest episode from the War Studies podcast was produced by the Department of War Studies in the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy here at King's College London. Just search for the War Studies podcast to find more of their episodes.